0: Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Babylon follows young reggae DJ yeah. of the Ital Lion sound system in Thatcher-era yeah. South London as he pursues his musical ambitions while also battling against racism and xenophobia of employers, neighbors, police, and the National Front. Written by Martin Stellman, who also wrote Quadrophenia, and shot by two-time Oscar winner Chris Menges, uh, who also shot The Killing Fields, with beautiful smoky cinematography that has been compared to Taxi Driver. Babylon is a fierceless, unsentimental, yet tempered by the hazy bliss of dance hall and set to blistering reggae dub and lovers of rock soundtracks featuring Oswald, Johnny Clark, Yabi Yu, Cassandra and many others. The film is called Babylon and we're joined today by the writer of Babylon and that would be Martin Stillman. Martin, welcome to Film School.
1: Hi, Mike. Uh very glad to be here.
0: Thank you. This is a film that has been re-released here in the United States, and I believe it's been 40 years or so since its initial release uh, in the UK. Um, What was it about this film, because it, it garnered a lot of attention and a lot of conversation about it at the time it came out, but uh, what was it about the film? What was it that made it such a controversial and some in some say incendiary film uh, at the time it came out?
1: Well, you know, when we're talking about uh, it coming out, of course, it never came out in the States. It never got a release in the States until now, so we would essentially be talking about when it came out in the U.K.
2: Right.
1: Um, and in the U.K., they... I guess regarded it, it regarded it to use your words uh, as incendiary because, for a start, it was one of the very first films that a British audience had seen with a virtually all-black cast, uh, an all-black cast speaking their own language, celebrating their own. Culture uh, in a very, uh, very sort of powerful way. I think. In addition, there is some you know racial racial violence in it, mm-hmm. uh, which is very much a reflection of what was going on at the time in the nineteen uh, mid to, to late nineteen seventies. We had a uh, we had a fascist, uh, an extreme right wing fascist uh, group. That was called the National Front, um, where, where I was working, which was in the Deptford area. That's uh, D-E-P-T-F-O-R-D. Mm-hmm. Um, in southeast London, it's a, it was kind of once a thriving uh, dock, dock land area uh, that had fallen on hard times. But was also an area of um, quite large-scale immigration, mostly black, mostly uh, the Windrush generation um, mm-hmm. of blacks, and mostly uh, people of Jamaican of a Jamaican background. So I think that the racism and the racial violence that's portrayed in the film, you know, was probably quite shocking to some people and maybe to some audiences, and it may have been the reason for this rather extraordinary certification, which they gave the movie, which was an X. An X in mm-hmm. those days meant you had various categories. I can't remember what the other ones. I remember that a U was a movie that you, that a kid could go see, and then there was, I think, there was parental guidance, which was PG, and then there was then there was X, which was you know definitely adult. So obviously that limited it, and there was a limited its audience, and there was a kind of uh, you know w- there was a theory which I'm not sure that I completely subscribe to. It was a bit conspiratorial, but some people said that the reason they gave it an X certificate is because they didn't want young younger teenagers should go and see the movie in case they became politicized by it. Mm-hmm.
0: In this era that you're talking uh, about, no. the, yeah, in the late 70s, early 80s, there was there was a lot of poverty in, in, the, in the UK. There was a lot of... There was unrest. Was there not... A, the, we mentioned Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister at the time, and my recollection of that time was that Britain was in economically in a bad way, and that there was there was sort of exacerbating circumstances beyond the usual xenophobia and racism, but things became were becoming more and more fraught with, with real danger in, in that regard, or am I overstating that?
1: Uh, well, Thatcher was a little later than the period. Yeah, I guess Thatcher comes to power pretty much. Around the time, if my chronology is right, I think she comes to power uh, at the end of the, the of the seventies, seventy nine. I think is when she uh, when she first came to power. Mm-hmm. So we'd had, but we'd had a couple of Labour governments. We'd had the three day week before that. You know, the three day week was when you know there there was the, there was a kind of crisis going on, an economic crisis going on to such an extent. That there was literally a three day week. In other words, you know, people, people only went in to work for three days because, because there wasn't enough petrol and electricity around. And there was, I think there was a crisis with the pound and all kinds of stuff. Right. So there was, yeah, there was economic hardship. And whenever I have conversations about, you know, this, this period, one should remember how recent the end of the war actually is, you know, a war that, had a kind of very profound effect on, we're talking 30 years after, mm. after the end of the war, but a profound effect on the, on, the, on the infrastructure and the economy of the country. You know, and a lot of the area, in fact, the area you know where the film is uh, shot mostly, uh, suffered a huge amount of bomb damage mm. from German bombing in the Second World War and is one of the reasons why uh, there was such a housing problem in in that part of London.
0: The f- I didn't even mention and that's on me that Babylon was directed by Franco Rosso and you and he co-wrote the screenplay for it. So was it you approaching him he approached you how did this sort of collaboration begin and also what was the was there an impetus for this story to be told in 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 your mind or in his mind? is
1: Well, we both had, um, you know, we both had different experiences of the world that we portray in the film. Frank's first experience, I think, as he, as he would relate it, were he to be with us now, mm-hmm. uh, and unfortunately he died a couple of years ago, is that he was kept awake at night by the thump, thump, thump of uh, sound system-based because at the bottom of his garden there was a church hall and in that church hall every weekend there used to be what jamaicans call a blues not the, not to be confused with the blues that we were talking about earlier
2: mm-hmm.
1: um the blues that comes from memphis but obviously related in some way but basically a dance you know a dance but but um There would be a blues, you know, pretty much every weekend, and he had young kids at the time, and they would keep him up. And I think he went over there one evening, and he said, you know, listen, my kids are trying to get to sleep. But being a curious kind of guy, I don't mean curious in in the sense of strange. I mean, you know, just kind of interested in uh, all human life. He just made a documentary, by the way, about the dub poet, called Lindsay Kwesi-Johnson. The film was called Dread, Beat and Blood. So he he kind of walked into this blues and got very interested in this whole subculture of sound systems that had originated in Jamaica but had uh, kind of ended up in a lot of areas of London where there were vibrance. Black communities, so that was his experience his initial experience of it. Meanwhile, I was working as a, a youth and community worker. I guess you guys would call it a kind of community organizer. Mm-hmm. Some of the kids I was working with, I was also doing drama workshop, and the kids that I was doing drama with, one of them in particular, her brothers and it was a mixed group by the way, with mm-hmm. a black and a white group. Uh, were obviously working class kids. One of the girls in the in the group, her boyfriend had a sound system. Now I should say that I was a kind of mad reggae fan. Anyway, you know, <laughs> um, I just kind of found out somehow that her uh, her boyfriend, and then a whole bunch of other people had, you know, you know, had sound systems, and that they were exactly the same people who were going to the church hall that uh, had so bothered Franco. Anyway, so I wrote an article, in, started researching a piece about uh, black London and black Londoners in whatever year that was, 1970, I don't know, 73, 74, early 70s anyway, mm-hmm. which was uh, then, it was a kind of feature article in, in Time Out. I don't know if you know the, uh, oh, well, there's one in LA. Yes, there, yes. It, it was the original London. Yeah, the original London time out. I was working, doing a number of things. I was a freelance journalist and I was also a, a community organizer or youth and community worker, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, so I got a phone call out of the blue from this guy, Franco Rosso, uh, saying he's a filmmaker. He really loved my article and, um, he'd like to meet. So we met, you know, when he suggested that, uh, you know, he was really thinking of making a film, you know, built around with a narrative built around uh, uh, a sound system and the characters in in the sound system, I was very uh, very taken with the (laughs) idea, Uh, especially as film for me was, you know, I was kind of, in a way, I was in my mid-twenties and I was doing a lot of different things, but really my the thing that I most wanted to do was to write movie scripts and make movies. So this was an extraordinary opportunity because Franco had already made movies, and I knew that I could learn a lot from him. I'd already been writing plays uh, for the theatre, and and we we started work on it, and that's mm-hmm. kind of how it happened.
0: Yeah. Among your credits is Quadrophenia, Was this around the same time? where you had you written Quadrophenia, or what was sort of the the very much
1: around the same time.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah, they were very much around the same time. Um, and there's a kind of strange sort of connectivity between yeah. the two films. Yeah. Uh, in that, well, you know, they're both coming-of-age stories. They're both working-class stories. Right. One is, the see, white uh, working-class, and the other one is black working-class. You know, the black kid, you know, they're... I'd hate to call it subculture, because it sounds like it's... In some way, uh, inferior and not mainstream. Right. Because of course, now it is mainstream. You know, all of that stuff is is uh, has become mainstream. Obviously, you know, drum and bass that comes out of the uh, out of the whole sound system movement. The, so the Black Kids have got this wonderful, vibrant, kind of energetic world of uh, of them of their music. Which is also accompanied by, you know, actually by 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 a style, a kind of dress style. Um, You know, this is the roots reggae era. era. So, rasta rastafari rastafarianism is a very is offered a very strong part of that kind of youth expression, and I see completely a parallel between um, what was then underground. Sound system culture, I see a parallel between that and the mods, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, in Quadrophenia who have their, also have their music,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which happens to be uh, American, early, and also they were into kind of early reggae mm-hmm. uh, themselves, and, you know, their style, their dress sense, and of course the bikes you know, the the scooters. In both films, you have the the, the expression, a kind of really throbbing, beautiful, musical, colourful kind of expression, which I think you always get where you have people who feel that they're not part of the mainstream, that they're not plugged into where the money is and where the power is. They go off and do their own thing, and that's kind of what happens in Quadrophenia and in Babylon. Yeah. So they are very connected thematically, I think. And then sort of historically, there's a, there's a connection because it was through Frank Rodham, the director of Quadrophenia, reading the script of Babylon that I was asked to write the, the script of Quadrophenia with Frank. Oh. I hope that makes
0: sense. Yes. Well, well, I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with uh, Martin Stellman. He is the co-writer as well as an associate producer of the film Babylon, which is being released here in the United States. It's actually had a couple of week run and it continues to play across the country. And it is in many ways a groundbreaking film, not only because of the subject matter, which was about a working class neighborhood in London where uh, Jamaicans and community of caribbean people who were who were doing what they like to do which is uh raising families and listening to music that they grew up with and it's part of this kind of social dynamic that is in play in the film the clash between them and the the authorities in london the police and and the and the citizens who fear the unknown in some way and it 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 plays out in in a way that feels very raw. This feels like a couple of films to me and it's been and one is The Harder They Come and it also reminds me of just the the evolving soon to be very well known punk scene where you saw bands like The Clash. It feels like this is the antecedent to uh, the the beginning of the 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 music that eventually be- we all became familiar with with the clash and and the punk movement and in, in in London and as it spread across the world really so there it feels like you know this is a real i mean it's just a very interesting film to to watch it is be for a lot of reasons it's well done as you were you're an associate producer I imagine this was a difficult shoot um it feels feels like there were a lot of locations a lot of setups a lot of things that feel like you were you were capturing them on the fly, and I may be wrong about it, these these things, but it feels that no, way. no,
1: your instinct, your your instinct's absolutely right about that. Yeah, no, I would just to go back to I'll, I'll come on to that in a moment, but yeah. I just wanted to uh, respond to one of the things you were saying uh, just earlier a moment ago. You know about the kind of film it is. I, I, I think there's also a sense in which I think. Uh, and this could be said of quotegenia, too, that we are fitting into not consciously, but we kind of do fit into a, a tradition of realists, yes or if you like, social realist or neo realist yes. films that well, you know obviously Franco being Italian. You know, that was very much part of his DNA, those those, move, those Italian movies. You know, uh, Italian movies about the working class, but also, you know, a very honorable uh, British tradition, uh, mostly in black and white, no. of um, movies about the working class, um, which both Franco and I grew up on. You know, we... So I'm talking about the loneliness of the long-distance runner, you know, Room at the Top, mm-hmm. those kinds of movies. You know, we obviously m- had to make Babylon, and I, I guess I'm now coming on to the second part of, of what you were saying. I mean, at least Room at the Top had Lawrence Harvey, if I'm not, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. I, I, I I,
2: right. I,
1: I could have that wrong, but, uh, you know, he was a star. We didn't have any stars, and, um, you know, let alone not having any stars, we had an entire cast, virtually, with the exception of, you know, the one character, Ronnie, you know, that, uh, <laughs> that were, were black. So, and had really never been seen before, except for Brinsley, you know, quite a few years before when he was a kid yeah, on, 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 I can't remember the name of the show, uh, but it was on TV, you know, mm-hmm. so nobody was a kind of household name. We had no marquee names at all. So we were obviously, you know, having to make this movie in the streets of London for very little money. Um, It was, as we say in English, a bit of a kick, bollock, (laughs) and scramble.
0: (laughs) One of the pleasures and also the liabilities of, of watching a lot of movies is... You, you watch it, you take it in, but also I always look for things in sort of the it, the margins of the of of the of the frame that are sort of tells as to whether or not you guys actually shot this with any kind of a setup, if this is sort of an ad you know, just sort of an ad lib as you're running through the streets or something like that and there are, you know, it gives it that rawness it gives it that neorealism that you're talking about, and there were a lot of films in that era that yeah. were in that vein they, they sort of just took chances they were, uh, the technology was Beginning to become a little more democratic, and so things were sort of a little bit easier to do than they would have been, you know, a few years earlier. So you had this ability to go Listen, out. And do we were, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, so, so um, I don't know if you remember the scene where uh, Blue uh, Brindley's character goes uptown up to the West End of London and gets dragged into this very nasty little. Uh, kind of scam that um, oh, yes. one yes. of his uh, yes. friends has got has got going. Yeah, um, and I don't know if you remember the scene where his friend meets a, a gay guy in in the in an amusement arcade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so this so that that is a perfect example of what you're talking about. It's literally drab. Yeah. So yeah. you know we're on a long we're on a long lens. We're we're actually filming it without permission from anybody. <laughs> um, we're actually shooting it through a letterbox in a building on the other so- on the other side of the road in Soho. Yeah. Uh, no police permission. No p- permission from the amusement arcade, I, I, as far as I remember. You know, we we had to do that a lot of the time. You know, we were. Uh, flying by the seat of our pants, to use another yeah. uh, figure of speech, um, as well as kickballing and scrambling.
0: <laughs> I love British expressions. I, I I wish we had. They were <laughs> as clever on this side of the pond as yours. Well, I w- just sort of in, in the <laughs> last minute or so that I've got with you, uh, Martin. Uh, I don't know when the last time you sat down and watched Babylon. I mean, we're we're obviously reflecting on it, but the last time you did watch Babylon. Did you have any? Were there thoughts in your mind like we were we were ahead of our time, or we we really were trying to do something different? What are your sort of idea reflections as you think back on this experience? As you as you sit here today?
1: Oh wow! Um, Well, I, I I tell you when the last time I saw it was a screening. Basically, what happened was that the film was for years. Um, It was a kind of bootleg, um, seen all over the Caribbean and wherever there were, uh, you know, West Indian communities. Mm -hmm. Bootleg, terrible, you know, terrible versions in in a terrible state, you know. And then Icon came on board and, you know, remastered it and and, uh, uh, put it out as a legal, you know, DVD. Mm-hmm. And there was a, an opening for that, for the release of the DVD in, um, in London. So that was the last time I saw it, which I think must have been about 10 years, uh, 10 years ago. No, maybe less. Anyway, so, you know, and there was a, the, it was packed out. And I thought uh, it, was, it was, well, first of all, I thought it was ma- amazing that it kind of somehow still stood up after all those years. I felt very gratified because a lot of people of the generation, well, actually Idris Elbert's generation, you know, sort of black Londoners in their kind of mid, mid-40s, early mm-hmm. 50s, um, were in the audience and, you know, and came up to me and Franklin and said, you know, you have no idea what an impact that movie made uh, on us. And how somehow it validated, you know, the lives, you know, as the lives we were leading as young, young blacks in London Mm -hmm. at the time, Mm -hmm. um, made us feel good about ourselves, you know, Um, in a way, way, even though the film, you know, has its kind of dark moments, there's no doubt about that. But um, that was, I found that a very beautiful, you know, very beautiful thing, actually.
0: In addition to an artistic expression, uh, telling a story, telling a story about people that's, whose stories are not often, if ever told, beyond that, that impact that was described to you is, had to be one of the things that was the, maybe the most gratifying thing that you could hear about the film. Indeed,
1: indeed. And, and you know, what's really... I've, what i I've found pretty, you know, mind-blowing is the response that we've got uh, to the movie in the States. I mean, you know, the the reviews have been, you know, they're, they're, they're reviews that you, <laughs> um, you know, they're the kinds of reviews that you desperately, you know, would would kind of, you know, be down on your knees to pray for, <laughs> and yet there they are, they're, you know, they're fantastic, and um, 40 years after, and somehow it's, seems to have struck a note of relevance is the only way that I can interpret it. Somehow it struck a note of relevance in the America, and I guess in, you know, probably the Britain of today. You know, um, I think in the post-Brexit, post-Trump world we live in, uh, the racism that we deal with in the film seems to be coming back with a vengeance it's a sad thing to say but um, um maybe you know uh, it, it, it's it's uh, m- maybe that is why it's, it's a movie that uh has had you know the effect that it's had yeah. Apparently,
0: yeah. in the states. Well, it, it, it's it's raw. It is all of those things. It's 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 certainly cinematically rough around the edges, but it's that's the way it's supposed to be, and it 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 is what it is. And I think the fact that it was a forty-year-old film it gives it that gravitas. It gives it that level of authenticity that you couldn't manufacture if you tried. And and it's a it's a testament to the vision that. Uh, you and Franco had for the film, and all the people involved, Chris Menges, and as well as others, that they've done. You did this, and it has stood the test of time. And is that you know, isn't that that's quite an accomplishment in and of itself? Well, thank you very much. So you're you're so welcome. Uh, thank you, Martin. I, I really appreciate uh, your time today. You continue to work, which I, I, I love. You're, you're continue to be uh, a vital part of the of the film world, and uh, I want to thank you so much for being here on Film School.